This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Tommy O'Connor grew up on Dublin's north side. His parents had been founding members of Sinn Féin and it was no surprise that he got swept up in the surge of nationalist feeling Ireland experienced at the start of the 20th century. We spoke to his grandson Tommy on a recent trip to America, which suits the story as it takes place on both sides of the Atlantic. He reads out extracts from Tommy's witness statement. I have been associated with the separatist movement since my early teens, from the commencement of the century. I joined the IRB in Liverpool in 1915. We featured Tommy's brother, John S. O'Connor's story on a previous podcast. That story starts with a boat, the Asgard, and his involvement with the Hoth gun running. This story starts with a boat too, but a much bigger one. Tommy was employed in ships crossing the Atlantic from an early age and found himself on the Carpathia in 1912 when it received a distress call from the Titanic. The Carpathia rushed to the Titanic's location and assisted with the rescue of survivors from the water. Tommy received a medal for his part in the rescue, not the last he'd earn in his lifetime. The two brothers joined the Irish Volunteers at its inception in the Rotunda Rink in 1913, and later, Tommy joined the more secretive Irish Republican Brotherhood, having moved to Liverpool to find work on transatlantic ships. I took any job that was going at the time on the boats plying between Liverpool and America so that I could carry dispatches between the two countries. I was not too concerned with the position which I held so long as it enabled me to do this particular work. I was aware during the years 1915 and 1916 that the prime objective of the Klan movement in America and the Brotherhood in Ireland was an insurrection in arms against Britain at an opportune moment, and my work on boats was solely connected with this objective in view. Up to the time of the entry of the United States into World War I, the authorities paid little attention to our activities so that we were enabled to carry on with a reasonable degree of safety in carrying of dispatches between the two countries. This role gave Tommy a unique view behind the scenes of the Republican movement at a time when nationalist fervour was reaching boiling point. Jeremiah O'Donovan's funeral saw Pierce's graveside speech conclude that Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. Tommy was in contact with the very top level of Republican leadership, Sean McDiarmada and Thomas Clark in Ireland, and John Devoy and Joe McGarrity in America. He was the carrier of messages that arranged for the amassing of arms for the Irish volunteers through contacts at the German embassy. I would point out that the real man behind the scenes in the German embassy was a gentleman named von Skal, who, with the usual German flair for method, filed all letters received from Devoy in connection with the transport of arms from Germany to Ireland. Sometime in April 1916, the United States Secret Service raided von Skal's office, which was not part of the German embassy, and discovered the correspondence which had passed between Devoy and him. All this correspondence, covering the arrangements for the transport of arms to support the rising, was discovered and the American government immediately got in touch with the British Foreign Office in London, giving them full details of the arrangements. The British government, however, did not take the matter seriously and took no steps to counteract the moves from the German end until the Aude, which was subsequently scuttled off Cove, was actually on the high seas. 
we can see Tommy being drawn into the murky world of international espionage. The horrors of World War I were fully underway, and America was teetering on the edge, being slowly drawn into the conflict. Carrying secret messages on British ships at this time, and meeting German diplomats and known Irish nationalists, was a high-risk endeavour, and lengthy precautions were taken. All messages exchanged between the Clan Nagale in America and the Republican Brotherhood in Ireland were in code, or so worded as to be meaningless to other than those for whom they were intended. Thomas Clark and Sean McDermott used to stay in my father's house in Sherrard Street, and it was there I was given the code and instructed in its use. I kept this code in a small notebook, which measured approximately three inches by two inches, and could be bought at the time for three a penny. I gave this notebook to John DeVoy prior to the rising and explained to him the method to follow in coding and decoding messages exchanged between Ireland and America. On that occasion, I gave him a coded message from Tom Clark and Sean McDermott. The message, I remember distinctly, opened with the words, this code should not be divulged to any person other than a member of the Revolutionary Directory or the recognized agent of the German embassy. As soon as DeVoy had decoded the message to the word embassy, he turned to me and said, that is all, O'Connor, you may go now. He seemed to overlook the fact that I knew the code by heart and the contents of all messages from Ireland to the Klan were known to me. This would have put Tommy in a difficult position as he was one of the first people to know that the rising was going ahead. He would have had to resist the urge to tell his family about the coming event. Tommy took part in the rising, fighting in Ned Daly's 1st Battalion in the Forecourts area. Later, he settled in New York. Years after this, he was able to release details of the code system used to transport those vital messages across the ocean. I read Pierce Beasley's recent article in The Irish Independent in which he referred to the code as a jumble of figures. This is not correct. As once learned, it was easy to remember, it was built up of the figures 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and excluded the figures 6, 7, 8, 9, and 0. The latter figures, when used, were to be ignored, as they would only be included for the purpose of misleading those into whose hands a message might fall. For more stories of the O'Connor brothers, visit www.storiesfrom1916.com or check out the second podcast in this series, which features John S. O'Connor's first-hand account of Easter week. Thanks for listening.